Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Katerina Fake and Kat Mignolik. Katerina hosts the podcast Should This Exist, which is a show about how technology is impacting our humanity. It launches today on iTunes, and I've linked it up in the description. She also co-founded Flickr, Hunch, and Findery, and is an investor at YesVC. Kat, who you've heard on the podcast before, is a partner at YC. You can find Katerina on Twitter at Katerina and Kat at Kat Mignolik. All right, here we go. So, Katerina, you are starting a podcast. What's it Indeed, called? Indeed, I am. It is called Should This Exist? Um, it is, it's been in development for, um, several months now and, and we've been working on it. It will be 10 episodes starting on the 21st, which I think was when, when this will go live. And, um, basically it's about so much of a, of what we do as entrepreneurs and, you know, as, you know, why Combinator knows better than pretty much anybody, um, is basically making the business case for your product service startup. And um, I think that we found in recent years, especially that the conversation has turned to not can this exist? Or how can we enable this to exist? But should this exist, right? And 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 I think that a lot of the things that we've seen kind of come out in the world in the past, you know, several decades, um, sometimes they may not have been not necessarily what the founders intended, Right. It may not have been what, um, you know, society wanted or needed or even individuals wanted or needed. And if there were a slight course correction mm-hmm. or if the founders had just been kind of asking them th- themselves that question, should this exist? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very important question to, ex- to ask, mm-hmm. right? Just, just flat out. Mm-hmm. Should this exist? Should this feature exist? Should we, you know, plan this company a little bit differently to address underrepresented groups, you know, this has potential for um, kind of increasing bias or inequality or like a thousand things that we can look at that are kind of these outcomes of our paths. And if you, you know, as we all know, when you're in a, when you're doing a startup, you've already been in existence for five years, it's much more difficult to change your course than it is at the very outset. So those are the questions that we are hoping to introduce into the conversation should this exist. So is there a process that you go through when you're trying to take apart an idea and figure out whether or not it should exist? Well, we it, most of it comes out in conversation. And I think that a lot of it comes out in um, the, the conversational process that you engage in, um, not only with your team, Right. As, as a, as a founder and, um, you know, as a, as a creator, inventor, um, actually a lot of the people that we have on the show are inventors and scientists and, Mm. um, Mm. um, people who are, you know, you know, kind of just taking maybe some research or some new technology, um, and bringing it out into the world and productizing it. And a lot of the time, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, questions out there. You know, there's a ton of, for example, like groups that are like kind of asking ourselves, you know, what are AI ethics? What, like, what do we do with, how do we manage the, um, you know, the potential very great downsides of say CRISPR? I mean, there's a lot going on right now. Crypto. I mean, it's like a very, um, uh, we're, we're kind of going into realms in which 
we just don't have a good ethical framework mm-hmm. to discuss them even. Mm-hmm. And so just making the, the kind of question, the part of the conversation, very important. I think about this a lot because I read thousands of YC applications and some of them are for really, you know, really incredible technology that I'm like, wow, this could have a huge impact. So who should be part of that conversation when, when you're trying to decide whether something should exist? Is it founders, investors, or like how? I mean, how do you I, see I honestly think that it's, it's a matrix, right? It's like mm-hmm. a, it's a, there's a lot of people that should be involved in that conversation. And I, and I do think that one of the benefits of this show, and one of the things that we're hoping to do with this show is to bring people in that are not necessarily normally part of the conversation, mm-hmm. right? You want to bring in sociologists. You want to bring in historians. You want to bring in psychologists, people who actually study a lot of the different processes and not all of us computer scientists, user experience designers. I mean, you know, yeah. like we're, we're, I mean, I, I think everybody starts off with the best of intentions. Nobody thinks that they're going to do something destructive when they start off. And as you know, you kind of read in the poetry of like Baudelaire, the, the descent to hell is by small steps, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You just don't, you just kind of see that happening over and over again. And so you want to prevent the, you know, the kind of the Theranos outcome. You want right. to put it like all of these, these things that, you know, you kind of, you kind of get there. Yeah. Have uh, you ever read the, the blog, wait, but why? Yes, it's I have. Tim Urban. Yes. So Tim talks about this idea in the context of uh, what he calls the human colossus. And basically he says like, we have this like divine destiny and that humans will just build, but it seems like you probably disagree like the market doesn't necessarily push a product to a certain place. Well, I mean, I think that the, you know, it's one of the great things about humankind, right? Yeah. We're, we're kind of, um, you know, homo faber, right? The maker, yeah. right? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, we are the makers and we honestly just can't help ourselves. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I honestly think it's one of the best things about us is that we're just endlessly curious. We like to develop new tools. We are kind of full of possibility and vision and we see something that, you know, can be changed and we want to change it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's one of the best parts of our nature. But when we do that, um, without a sense of some of the possible outcomes or even being aware of them and nobody knows. I mean, that's why they're called unintended consequences, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Because they're not intended. And yet, you know, but sometimes if you sit down and you really look at it, you can see them. You mm-hmm. can see, like, if you had, if you had just kind of like taken the time, made this part of your conversation that you could put things on a completely different trajectory if you stop to think. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's actually amazing how hard that is to do. I mean, without exception, the entrepreneurs that we've interviewed so far for the show have been, um, they've all said, we are so grateful for the opportunity to ask these questions and to have these conversations because in our daily work, we never have. We aren't asked these yeah. questions by our investors. We aren't asked these questions. And it puts them on much firmer ground themselves and sometimes even exposes or kind of um, shows them possibilities, um, you know, for their products that they hadn't previously seen. And that's super exciting when that happens. Well, so maybe we should be more concrete. So what's the yeah. first episode about? The first episode is about, um, it's, it's coming out today. Yeah. If today yeah, is yeah. <laughs> uh, February 21st. And, um, and it's about a, uh, um, neuro priming headset. 
that makes you learn faster. So it's like the matrix. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, and it's, it's actually, it was invented by, um, Daniel Chow, who is a neuroscientist and he had actually done, um, devices that were implanted in your brain that required literally oh, wow. opening yeah. up your head. I mean, he's like, I mean, he's, re- he's a real deal. Yeah. Right. And he realized that this was an extremely frightening procedure for obvious reasons. Um, his, it was, it was his, his prior product, um, had been, called Neuropace and it was, um, addressing, uh, epileptics, um, epileptic, kind of the, um, medical treatment of epileptics using the electricity in your brain. Right. Mm-hmm. And which makes sense, mm-hmm. but, um, had, had been, it was been very difficult to get people over that hump of, you know, putting literally like cutting your skull yeah. open and implanting <laughs> a device in your brain. And so he decided to go with a new product mm-hmm. that, um, you know, you can still affect the brain. Right. But you don't have to be as invasive. So super interesting. A lot of ethical implications. Um, it's specifically designed around, um, sports. And if it works, so much learning could happen. It's almost science fiction. Yeah. Right. It's like almost science fiction. You put on, like, like there's this movie, um, from the seventies, um, called Fantastic Planet. It's a French movie and literally the people in it, in the science fiction movie put on a headset. And boom, learn everything, right? Yeah, I know and judo. This, right? And so it's kind of, it's kind of sci-fi yeah. in that way, right? I was always a big science fiction fan. And so part of the reason that I love, frankly, these conversations is because they're all about that kind of possibility. What if? What if? Have and, you, you know, like, yeah. whatever. Science fiction also has a very strong utopian. Of course. And dystopian. Yes. Um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, interest. Like it, it focuses on those two potential outcomes frequently. That's one of the things that I've learned recently that has been so interesting is that big companies are starting to hire science fiction writers. Oh, really? To, cut, to map out these possibilities. Exactly. Because <laughs> that is what they have been doing. I yeah. mean, that's kind of what their job is. Right. As science fiction writers, they're just kind of future scenario planners. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, so, okay, so this is kind of reframing the show to me. Um, I had previously thought it was more about criticizing things that currently exist. So is that happening or is it more about future ideas? And no, like, should- no, it's, it's more about kind of taking something that's that, leading edge, kind right? Of. That's actually leading edge. Okay. And is something that is coming soon. Gotcha. And is even in market. Okay. Right. And, and, um, sometimes they're in market, something, sometimes they're still on the kind of early development stage, but having those conversations at the very early gotcha. side of those, because I mean, there's a lot of criticism online of things of that already exist. And I think that if you read your op-ed of, you know, kind of your daily paper, you will find a lot of that. But what we're trying to do is really kind of, you know, start yeah. at where we are. Yeah. Yeah. With new products. And, 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 and in some ways that's, it's kind of the most fun. It's also mm-hmm. way more optimistic. And it's more that, optimistic. Which is, for me, yeah, the dystopian stuff, it can be. I mean, of, you could just sit around and criticize the existing technology yeah. like all day long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and it's actually very gratifying to yeah. do that <laughs> in some ways. In but like I'm not a sure mean, like, like putting down celebrities kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think that the, the goal of this show is actually much more, about possibility, right? Mm. Then shutting stuff down. Mm, okay. So 
this is a little bit of a side note, but I did have a question about current existing technologies. So if you say we're an employee at a company where you're like, I don't know if this should exist. What, how do you think about that idea now? Because it's, it's yeah. no longer like if you were working at a hardware store 50 years ago and you're like, I don't know. I just sell like screws and hammers and nails and whatever. You're like, right. You know, kind of like doing These are no neutral. harm. Yeah. It's neutral. They're not, they're not harming anybody. Right. Necessarily. But, I mean, yeah, obviously you can harm somebody with a hammer. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you're like, <laughs> oh, I sold <laughs> screws to a serial killer. Sure. Um, but, <laughs> but, but now you're like, okay, <clears throat> I think maybe five years ago, people might say like, I don't know, you know, I'm just like an employee at this company and I'm just whatever. This right. is a fine salary. Right. Not so easy to say. Today. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, one of the great things about Millennials and what are we calling the people that come after the millennials? Gen Z, Gen Z, <laughs> and then there's the one that like there's like you know after so uh, yeah. like kids today, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know whatever youth. youth, whatever you call them these days, <laughs> yeah. are super engaged and want to know yeah. that the things that they're working on have merit, are on a, are putting things on a good trajectory, have positive impact and not ne- negative impact. And you see this happening over, over and over again. You saw recently the Google walkout. Mm-hmm. Um, you see organizations rising up to help people inside of organizations communicate with each other and figure out how to communicate this to, um, you know, senior management, etc. So I think it's a huge movement. And I think that, um, people have started to realize as employees, of large companies that they also have the power to say, no, mm-hmm. no, like, you know, it should not exist this way. Maybe it should exist this way mm-hmm. and actually be part of that influence and conversation and, and, and yeah. you know, kind of actually set the trajectory of their work yeah. because it's their work, right? It's, it's really, you know, it's the work that you do every day and you have to feel good about that. I think that, I think that we all recognize that. Where, you know, a lot of the time, um, those of us who are so lucky, right, to earn paychecks working in technology, right, which is a privilege, right? And most people do not have this privilege. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we, we should consider ourselves extremely lucky are able to, with our work, and you can kind of see, change mm-hmm. the world, right? And kind of this has always been the promise of Silicon Valley. We're here. We're going to change the world, right? There's tons of that. Are yeah. you trying to change the world for the better? I mean, yes, you're changing the world, right? Everybody's changing the world with their work every day, yeah. a little like bit by bit, yeah, right? And are you changing that world for the better or not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you want to be always making sure that you bring your moral compass to work with you. Yeah, and absolutely. And you have a choice because, I mean, I know – many people at companies who feel like they got lucky and they just ended up there and they're like, Oh, I don't know. I might be part of this machine, but I don't know if I can be part of another machine anymore. Like this might've been one hit. Right. And so they get, they get locked in. But I think as people start to think about stuff, they, they do end up moving on. But I was curious about you as a founder. Did you ever look back and maybe even on projects where you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I should have made that. If that was a decision that should have been made. Well, Sometimes you can't see the consequences of it. So, for example, if you go back to my Flickr uh, photo stream to around 2004, you'll see the design. I posted it up there, I think, in 2008 or something like that, of um, the first uh, activity feed. 
Okay. I never call it a feed. I call it recent activity because <laughs> a feed always reminded me of like animals at a trough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 which might be more accurate. Which may, which may <laughs> be more accurate, right? Subsequently, right? And um, you know, this was a this was a significant thing. Yeah. Right. Um, it was it was not invented by me. It was just really invented. It was kind of reverse cron that we had seen in blogs, mm-hmm. and um, the difference was it included activity from other people in your social network, right? It was the first time that this had actually kind of appeared. And so um, you would see people liking your photo. You would see when your friends had posted a photo and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, you know, you could, you could just basically see activity as it was happening on the system. And it's interesting because this was then adopted by Facebook subsequent subsequently. But the changes that were made there were very significant. And we could see it all the way along the way. Mm -hmm. We could see that, oh, suddenly they're reordering things based on people's attention, Mm -hmm. not on chronology, right? Mm -hmm. This is super significant. We saw that and we're like, whoa, that is not good, right? Because suddenly if you have somebody, um, you know, it's it's kind of the same thing on, on, uh, you know, kind of television. What gets your intention is not necessarily the thing that you should be paying attention to. It's a, it's a security hack of your biology as how, as kind of how I think about it, because you, you're just kind of as a human animal, you know, you're like, you know, you see like naked people, you are not going to not look at that. Yeah. You see a car accident, you're not going to not look like, at that. I mean, it goes back to the early days of newspapers. If it bleeds, it leads. If it That's bleeds, what they it used leads, to say. right? And so yeah. once you start organizing things, not based on simply, I am interested in following this person, yeah. right? I'm interested in what they have to say, exciting or boring, right? Or I trust this news source, etc. Mm-hmm. And then kind of making it so that not only – um, is it the most attention getting things, um, are promoted, but you can buy your way there. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think that, you know, a, a recent activity, um, you know, reverse cron list is actually, there's, I don't think there's that much wrong with it until yeah. you start adapting it in these somewhat nefarious ways. Right. So you see kind of some of the inventions that, well, you, you've but then made, you go right? back. I mean, you, you could look at uh, I forget what year it was, but then there was like the rise of things like Upworthy, so right. they gamed it in a different way. Sure. So that was like the early days, like sure. oh, we can sensationalize positive things and get in the feed before you had to buy your because as soon as soon as you switch to paid promotion of your Facebook page, right. it changed the game. Sure. Right. Like you didn't get any activity in the feed unless you bought your way to the feed. I know, and it's it was it was kind of a, a tragic thing to see. A network that was yours. Yeah. Right? It, like, these are your people. Mm-hmm. Like, this is your cousin and your sister and your coworker and your friend. And you don't even see it. And then suddenly, like, yeah. They're gone. <laughs> and so, I mean, uh, you know, yes, you can sensationalize yeah. worthy things as well. But I think that the problem is in the verb sensationalize, right? Attentionify, yeah. you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, like, yeah. It's a it's an issue. Yeah, and, it's and, an but, issue. But now both of you guys are doing this as investors, right? So, Kat, you're you sit in interviews mm-hmm. at YC. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think about 
oh, I don't know. Maybe this shouldn't exist or maybe, maybe cause. Do you put I, your money behind it? Because yeah. like, honestly, it, it's super interesting. I was, I was talking to a guy recently. Yeah. And he was, he was introduced to Juul really sure. early, yeah. which is the, yeah. which is the cigarettes, right? And he, the way he was pitched this was it's a great product. It will, um, reduce smoking. Right. Right. Like fewer people will smoke as a result of using Joel. And, and, um, he was kind of like, okay, well, that's a interesting claim. But then why would you start a smoking company to like have there be less smoking? If you know what I'm saying? And uh-huh. so he, he, and then he kind of looked into it and he's like, oh. in no way are they actually explaining the addictive properties of nicotine. It's now what? Like there's, you know, five million new smokers because of this single product, a single product, right? And they recently got investment from Philip Morris. And so he could have at the very early stages of Juul, because he happened to, you know, meet them really early, yeah. have invested two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in this in this um company, which would mm. now be worth twenty five million dollars, right? That two hundred and fifty fifty thousand. He said, and I thought that this was super interesting I never had put a price on my ethics and integrity before, but I now know. <laughs> it's twenty five million. Exactly, it's twenty five million at least, right? right? Yeah. Because that's just where it is now. And yeah. so, and so, I think sometimes, like, yes, you can totally get rich by burning down the rainforest and kind of creating sexist media and you know all kinds of things that you can invest in. Right. Right. But do you invest in them? Is the question. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that at YesVC, I'm an investor and my, mm-hmm. my firm is called YesVC. Um, I think we have generally, um, you know, certain categories that we won't invest in, you know, which is true for a lot of funds, right? The LPs have rules that like right. you, can, you right? can't invest in guns. Right. But like we don't invest in gaming, right? We don't invest in a lot of games. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we don't is because it's like a lot of the time it's like, you know, it's like it has all the same mechanisms as, addictive gambling and and things like that. And like a lot of times it's just like Las Vegas for children. And you realize that the same mechanisms that are, you know, the same security exploits, frankly, that social media mm-hmm. has taken advantage of are, which like, that's a whole nother conversation that we can have about my opinions of social media. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we just don't want to be in, in, in that kind of atmosphere. If it has those kinds of properties. Yeah. Right, those compulsive, addictive properties. It's just a category that I'm not against games. You know, I'm like a you know you know give me some settlers of Catan yeah, any yeah, day. Right. But I'm but I'm not I'm not in the in the business of creating these you know addictive like behaviors. So and the gaming category is is full of that. Right. And I mean, that's why I like the concept of this show that you're doing a lot, because I think more of those conversations about should we fund this? Should we be part of this? Uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, since we're so early, um, you know, we're the first, you know, check for the first money in. And so that is, is pretty powerful. So it's, it's like, so powerful. Yeah. And so because you- you're basically putting the, you know, Y Combinator yeah. seal of approval on every company that you invest in. We too, we're like putting mm-hmm. the Yes VC seal of approval yeah. on every on every company that we endorse. I mean, it's an endorsement. 
I mean, of course. Yeah, right? of course. I mean, think tricky things have happened at YC. Absolutely. Where a company pivots and you're like, oh boy, yeah. that was not the intended consequence of the right. 120 grand at the time. Exactly. Right. And you, and you, and you can kind of, you know, disavow them, try to go in and coach them and whatnot. But I think that part of the Y Combinator conversation should be in this, should this exist direction. I think it's important. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's also important. That another thing too is that we have a, um, we wrote this thing called the founder, the co-founder charter, which is a, a conversation that co-founders have. And I'm sure that Y Combinator has some version of, of this as well. Um, where you kind of set out your expectations, your hopes and dreams for the company, um, and where you would want to go. But I think it's really important also to put down in that document, you know, uh, what you will and won't do. Like where, where are the limits? If you're, if you're in AI, um, you know, or you're in CRISPR or you're in one of these, um, kind of emerging categories, it's like an ethical minefield. Yeah. You know, really know where, where yeah. you will and won't go. What? So for, do you make all of the founders that you invest in fill out this charter? No, no, we don't. I mean, we, it's kind of offered and mm-hmm. we, we yeah. kind of have the conversation. We encourage that conversation. It's not required. But I think that our, our, um, founders tend to be of a certain kind. Mm-hmm. And if you look at all of my prior companies, my prior investments, they do have a certain flavor. There's a certain mm-hmm. ethos that, that they have in common. So, um, you know, Flickr was an online community. There were kind of, it was a very human community, very creative, um, very communicative. And, um, you know, other companies, uh, that I've been part of include Etsy, where I was like the fourth or fifth person there, um, on the founding team and then became the chairman up through its, I mean, you know, yeah. and then, you know, other companies, uh, that, I have funded like Kickstarter. They have a very, um, I think human ethos. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, the kind of technology that I've always hoped to build. And, and part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is that I've always seen a, a big part of my job as me catering a fake is actually to humanize technology yeah, yeah. because it can, it can dehumanize us. And it has a tendency to do that if we, if it goes in certain directions and to constantly bring it back you know, to the human, to the relational, to the interpersonal, to the communitarian, to the creativity, all of those things about us. And they're all, they're also all these structures that you're working within. Because I think people yeah. could say like, well, you know, VC is inherently prone to being susceptible to all of these vices, right? Cause you, yes. you have the money, you're like, here, I'm going to give you X amount of money for Y percent. Sure. And it assumes a certain amount of like, hopefully infinite growth, mm-hmm. right? And people will just like beg, borrow and steal to get that number so they can keep increasing the valuation so they can keep raising so they can, you know, exit. Right. Um, yeah, but you exist saying, you know, and I think YC is in a similar boat. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily have to be true. Right. But it's painted that way. There's so many conversations that are going on right now about the VC model that I think are, are great. And, and everybody questioning the unicorn blitz scaling, you know, <laughs> 99 must die for one to succeed model, which I think that, that for, for, you know, decades has been taken as the single path to a successful valley venture funded company, which is why you end up with the, you know, the, the venture backed sociopaths and the, you know, these like truly like, yeah, you of know, kind of like it kind of, it actually kind of puts you in the position where you have to become a worse person, right? You have to change your goals and your desires and who it is that 
um, you become. Yeah. And um, I worked on Wall Street for six months. Okay. So it's as long as I could, I could actually have. Was it. that when you were the, the door assistant? You mentioned this on the, on another podcast I listened to. You were oh. like writing a novel or something. I was a receptionist. You were a receptionist. Yeah. Um, I, so, <laughs> this is a long story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was a painter. Okay. Like literally a painter making like nothing. Literally nothing. I was, I was, I was, I was living on like, there's this place like, like in New York that it was called Gray's Papaya. Where famously you could get a 99 cent hot dog yeah. near my house, right? Yeah, yeah, 99 yeah. cent hot dog and a soda. It was like, like, this is like the lowest, <laughs> Great nu- deal. lowest nutrition period of my life, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how I survived it. I was like thin as a rail, but, um, I was a painter and I, and I took all these temp jobs and I had a temp job at, at a, um, investment bank mm. and the managing director of this department came to me and he said, Ooh, you know, kid. I was only like in my twenties, super young, early twenties. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you're really smart. You could be an analyst here. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm a painter and, you know, it's kind of not my, not my, uh, desire. And he's like, yeah, but I'm going to pay you a six figure salary. Right. And I'm like, six figure salary. <laughs> I'm like, what? literally like I'm living on like 99 cent hot dogs at this point. So I'm like, okay, I, I think I can take you up on that. So I went out and I bought myself like, literally I bought myself a suit. Like a power suit <laughs> and like some shoes, right? Cause I'm working on Wall Street. Yeah. I have to like, I can't look like a receptionist anymore. I'm like an animal. I'm like the real deal. So yeah. I, I step in and within six months, I found myself becoming a different person. This was the thing that I noted in myself. I was surrounded by, and it was all guys, right? It was like me, um, and a bunch of guys, right? And it, I was as tough as any of them. Right. It's kind of, I was yeah. as tough as any of them. They were so impressed by me. They started calling me brass balls. I mean, this is like, <laughs> this is Wall Street, right? You know, this is very Wolf of Wall Street kind of yeah, environment, yeah. totally Wolf of Wall Street environment. And I, uh, and yet I could be just as obnoxious as them. And that's what they liked about me. And I didn't like that that was what they liked about me. They didn't like my kindler, gentler, more thoughtful, poetic, painterly qualities. They liked the fact that I could just rise up or down, like go lowered myself down to their level. Yeah. Right. I could kind of meet them where they were and just be like, I can give as good as I get here. And then I realized what was happening to me as I was. So literally that was like six months of that experience where I was just becoming, you know, the Wolverine of wall street and I didn't want to become that. And so I was, what happened was I was, I got off the subway at, um, on Fifth Avenue in New York where I was living and was on my way to work. And I remember I was, I had just become so angry all the time and that I was walking down the street and I was refusing to move aside for other people, right? Because I was just like in this world of, I don't know, like I was some kind of like elite <laughs> entitled person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was awful. Like it was truly, I was transforming into just the most terrific person and it was actually when I was standing there on the sidewalk, unwilling to move aside for other people, that I realized that I had to quit. And I walked in and I quit that day because I was just like, it's not worth it. Like you're, this is the end of this is the end of you. Mm-hmm. Like you have become a monster. It's very self aware. Yeah, I think right? a lot of people do twenty years before they. Feel I was going to say you realize that. I mean, but like, <laughs> you know, and I was like, I was, I was like, I was. Back to 99 cent hot dogs within yeah. like 20 more, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, saved, yeah, yeah. I, I was good at saving, so that's yeah. not entirely true, but I, you know. 
Yeah. Right? Like, and so that was a, that was a kind of a, a, a big moment. I think it's dangerous, right? You get part of a certain culture and then you want to be good at the game. Yeah. And we, we've seen right. this in the Valley, right? Yes, You're exactly. Like, this is the game I'm in right. and I'm going to mold myself to make it work. Right. Right. And that was the game. And I'm good at the game. I can always figure out the game. Exactly. I can always figure out the game. Right. Right. Like that's one of my, like my special sauce is that I would get in a system. So for example, school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? we, should, we should talk about yeah. this. We should talk about this because I I was a horrible student, right? Mm-hmm. I was a great student and I was a horrible student. I liked to learn, but I didn't like to be taught. And so I had this, you know, yeah. I would go to class. I would, you know, you know, for example, like eighth grade geology. I was like, oh, this is great. I've been collecting rocks my whole life. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm so into this. So I like sat down and read the geology textbook. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I love this subject. It's so great. So I showed up for class the second class. And I realized that the teacher was just going to read out of the textbook, which I just, which I just read. Yeah. And so I'm like, this is horrible. I'm not going to bother doing this. So I, so I left and they, you know, uh, I kept on getting, you know, marked absent. I was a truant. <laughs> yeah. My parents had to come in and talk to the principal and all these, they made me back, go back into class again. So in order to get around this, I would read, I would check out of the library, I get interlibrary loan. I would get all of the books of the bibliography of each of the chapters of my geology textbook and I would read them. Okay. And then I would sit in the front row and the teacher was like, Hey, um, you know, blah, 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 um, plate tectonics, this. And I was like, you know, if you had read, I would raise my hand. If you had read the seminal paper in plate tectonics, you would realize that blah, blah, blah. And that was like the most of <laughs> That went over really yeah. well. Yeah, right? I'm so sure. that it went over incredibly yeah. poorly, which yeah. is kind of a design. <laughs> yeah. And then I was excused from class and she kind of took me aside and said, if you just show up for the exam, you know, I will not report you absent anymore. So I did all of these like weird workarounds. And then I, I kind of just would, and it wasn't like I was off like smoking dope, like behind the bushes. <laughs> like I, I was actually in the library yeah. reading. So it wasn't like I was a bad student, but I was truly like institutions and I have never gotten along well. And so I was, you know, I, I was always like that. And I, and I discovered that if you did really well on standardized tests, you were good. Right. Yeah. So I was like, I was one of those students where I had like, you know, straight C's and then occasionally I would get like A pluses in a class where I had a really stellar teacher and I just loved them and I would do everything like that I could. And and then I had all these C's and like, I was always on the verge of getting kicked out. And, (laughs) um, and yet I was like a national merit scholar. Yeah. Right. So I had this, I had this like peculiar relationship to, to, to school and to education. I was there were a lot of people there who had like so much better grades than I did. I was, I did not get good grades. In but it worked out okay for you. So now, do right. you, yeah, right. Do you feel that school is, is doing a disservice to many people or are you just a, a small percentage of the world where you're like, I don't know, I was never going to fit in here. And so I can succeed as an entrepreneur. I, I mean, I do think that that, Nature, right? That yeah. peculiar, but peculiarity is actually very common yeah. among mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. I think so too. Right? Yeah. That tendency to look at existing frameworks in which you're being forced to fit and, and just say like, I don't fit into this framework. Yeah. I, like this, this framework right. is not serving people. Um, how can we, well, you can also set it or change it or somehow adapt in a different way. And forge your own path. And you have to kind of be, like I said, have a lot of initiative, right? Like you cannot go to class because you don't want to do the work or you cannot go to class 
because you read all of the books in the bibliography on right. plate tectonics. You know what I'm saying? Like you can, you right. can, you can, there's different approaches, right? There's different reasons to not go to class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're not going to class for the right reasons, in the end, I think it will serve you. Yeah. Right? It's, it's hard to have that confidence when you're younger, right? To, to step course. back and be like, oh, God. dude, this is all like, all these rules are made up. I know, but like, I think that you have to look into yourself really deeply and ask yourself, you know, do I really, like, is this something that's actually truly worthwhile? And to not fight to win prizes not worth winning. Right. So much of life is that. Yeah. And switch it up. So what, I'm actually curious about both of you. Like, who did you look up to when you were younger? Was there someone, you oh. Like, oh man, I could, you know, I could be like them. Oh, that's a good question. I don't, do you have, do you have an answer? I'll think about Two it. Two of, of people who, cause I, you know, cause when funny. I, You're I like, think about it personally and I'm like, you know, I don't, School, I, I was at fine. Like it was no problem. It was mm-hmm. not particularly difficult to get a B or an A minus, right, or whatever. Right. Um, but I was like, I don't think I want to win this game. Right. Yeah, yeah. This is not where I fit in. And so I would just look around and see, like, oh, you know, like Spike Jones is like he's making videos, he's making skateboard videos, but he's yeah. also starting a yeah. company. He's doing all this creative work. That's so awesome. Right. So there is a model, right? Sure. Oh, so yeah. I'm wondering, yeah. like, no, if I, you yeah. guys, right? And and it's interesting too because, um. They're, uh, like you say, Spike Lee is kind of a great example Spike of that. Jones. Spike Jones. I'm sorry, Spike Jones. It's okay, um, Spike Lee too. Spike Lee also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Actually, sorry. Yeah. Um, but like Spike Jones, and you know, it's, it's so funny because, um, um, when I was living in New York around that same time, Spike Jones was living down in a alleged gallery oh. down on the Lower East Side on Ludlow Street. And, um, I used to go hang out with those guys and they were publishing. A magazine called Dirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember this? I'm aware. Were you like aware yes. of this? Yeah. And so we thought that this was the coolest thing ever because yeah. it was. And I remember one of the things that I learned from that was how to how to um, deface. It, it's illegal. It, how to deface <laughs> a Canadian Five to turn the uh, you know the old white dude on the $5 Canadian bill into Leonard Nimoy's like (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Spock. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which was so like, I I remember that I was like actually from like an early issue and they had so many like things like that, that were like quasi illegal in dirt. I don't know if you you ever saw an issue of this thing, like how to drill a um, hole in a quarter (laughs) so that you could, Use it repeatedly at the laundromat. I definitely know about to that do one. these like, yeah. like things like, like yeah. it's like a thousand sure. things like this, and I'm like, it, you know, can you publish things? Like this? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so and, and for me, right? it's like, oh, there are these like fringe examples of right. how it works, right? And so you know, what's interesting though, and here's the thing that's kind of interesting, yeah, is that what was on the and this always happens, right? What was on the edge became the center, totally, right? Right? Ten years ago, Ten all years the things ago. we're doing with startups and right? having individual founders being able to build enormous companies, that did just didn't happen. Right. And, and also, you know, kind of, you know, culturally, rebellion was actually rebellion against a system. And now you're kind of in – it's on the, you're on the inside. Oh, yeah. You know, you're kind of being asked to disrupt. Yeah. Right? And And that's a complete change, I think. In culture, I mean, you know, obviously it's been happening since, I don't know, since Levi's, right. you know, became like, you know, 
like $600 jeans, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like it's yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like it used to be just totally rebellious, actually rebellious to wear Levi's. I mean, now it's kind of hard to say, I, it right? But yeah, I, think, I yeah. think I've heard the comparison multiple times that like, you know, Facebook jobs are the same as the Goldman job 10 years ago. I th- yeah. think it's kind of true. It's kind of true. I mean, how much does an entry level Facebook employee make? Six figures, I assume. Yeah. Six figures. Yeah. Right. I mean, like you get a painter. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sitting behind a reception desk at a at an investment bank. Yeah. You know, yeah. In 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 the late nineties. Yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> you know, so funny. it's not it's not that different. So do you have answers? We move on. Do we have answers? Oh, about who we looked up to as kids. I don't think get back to you on that. Okay. I mean, I you know there's like, so many. It's super interesting too yeah. because I think that there's kind of cultural, you know, you know, Spike Jones being a great example, like there's there's kind of cultural icons. Yeah. that are not necessarily people you're going to like you didn't become no. a skateboarder filmmaker. No. kind of media person, right? But you recognized in certain people a spirit yeah. that you felt was something that you related to and yeah. wanted to follow you know or emulate or you know you kind of just took his inspiration and and so as you are homeschooling is that something that you try and set up for your kids i you kind of have to find those yourself yeah you know okay. what i'm saying like you can't just you i mean did but you like, did set your, them up for it the was pursuit. like your parents were yeah. just kind of like here are your hey, available <laughs> options <laughs> you would have been like no thank you like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um no i mean I, I do think that you have to you know, provide a rich environment in which those possibilities are there are present. Yeah. I am. I, what I'm really thankful for today is that I was thinking through like all the people that I, I looked up to and only one woman comes to mind from being a kid. Right. I, I really uh-huh. liked Leia Salonga, who was this, I'm Filipino. Right. And who was this Filipino artist and, and performer. What's her name? Leia Salonga. She was the voice of Princess Jasmine. Okay. She was in, you know, we should know. Mm-hmm. For the record, I'm half Filipino. Oh, yeah. you are! <laughs> oh my god! My mother's How my mother exciting. my mother is uh, Filipina. Ah, that's just, ex- just oh my gosh, right. this is huge! And, um, huge yeah, news. No, 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 it's true. <laughs> yeah. Actually, really. Yeah. And yeah. so now I, mean, I think that there's, and I think what it was is just seeing a Filipino woman who was successful out in yeah. the world. Oh yeah. And and put on a pedestal, and people really appreciated her work. I didn't know any other Filipino women that right. were featured anywhere. And so I think I think it's so great now that there's way more um, women in all industries that are some highlighted are and featured. Yeah, some of who are. And so I, that, that's something that means a lot to me is that is seeing someone who looks like you or represents yeah. sort of the background that you came from um, right. owning it. I mean, I, I think this is really important, honestly, if you're in an underrepresented group, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. To see your kind of Latinx hero, to see your, yeah. you know, you know, Filipina hero. I, you know, I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now I have so, another Filipina here. <laughs> here we are. This is the most ever on one I mean, of our it's podcasts. Exciting. Yeah, like, the most like, ever Filipinos. Filipino time. Where's Diane Eisner? Like, we need to. Yeah. We can go get Jollibee together. What? It'll be great. <laughs> the Jollibee used to be a, a couple blocks away yes. from here, but it's no longer. It's no longer. Yeah. yeah. I know. Do I, they? Do they have banana ketchup at the Jollibee? I don't think so. I could never get into the sweet pasta situation. Yeah. It's a thing. You have to. Grow up with it. <laughs> <laughs> might be an acquired taste. Um, so we have some questions from Twitter that okay. I thought would be kind yeah. of fun to cover. Okay, good. Um, okay. So 
let's see. We have many questions. So I think this could be kind of interesting. So how did you get your first 100 users? But now, now you started three separate companies. So there's right. Flickr, Hunch, Findery. Right. Did you apply the same strategies for all of them? They're very different. Um, it, it gets easier as you go along. I started on, maybe I didn't like kind of start from second base, but I, you know, I started from first base at least. I was okay. already on base. Okay. Like in that I had a, um, I had a blog okay. that had a lot of followers and I had started this very early, early on. And so it was literally drawing from my existing community and the people that I already knew mm-hmm. who, who then were invited to and participated in. You have to, you know, you start small. Um, you start where you are with what you've got. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, ha- I had, I had the advantage of having been very, uh, gregarious online <laughs> for several years before starting Flickr, which is where our initial, yeah. our initial, um, user base came from specifically. So you were just blogging? I was blogging. I started a blog in 1998. Nice. And it was What platform did you use? It was um on uh, the first one was actually just written in HTML. Oh, actually. Okay. Yeah. So you just put up a page every time you had a new post. It was literally in HTML. And then sometime around that time, uh, there was blogging software appeared. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was kind of a revelation. There are always things like um, geo cities and, um, this, this is starting to sound like kind of grandpa in the creaking rocking chair talking about like when I was a kid, but it was like geo cities and diary land and all these kinds of things yeah. were like back in the olden days. And then, um, blogger yep. came out and then movable type, mm-hmm. yep. um, which eventually became WordPress. And, um, and so I started using both of those actually. I just found my blogger archives online, which was kind of amazing to That's find. Great. Um, and so I've had this blog, I've had the blog, which I t- maintain to this day, uh-huh. um, at katarina.net, which, you know, I had started in circa 1998, roughly around then when I got my handwritten <laughs> reverse cron. Right. Yeah. You know, blogs, literally. And, and, and there wasn't any blogging software at the time. And so not only that, but the blogging community was actually very small. And so we all knew each other. I knew Mina Trot from Movable Type. I knew Ev Williams from Blogger. I knew mm. all of these people. Mm. And, um, it was just a very, very small and very rich community, actually, very close. We all read each other's, um, um, stuff. And so it was a, it was a really great core. Mm-hmm community to start with. Not only that, but they had the ability to talk about new things, including your photo sharing product mm-hmm. too. But it's interesting because I, you know, one thing that I should note is that the, the way that uh, Flickr really took off okay. was that it was at the time thought to be um, extremely expensive to serve photos Right. And it was, but we knew that the cost of storage was declining and the cost of, um, serving photos, um, was declining and more people had, uh, broadband at their house. You know, we're talking about like circa 2003 Mm -hmm. and, um, it seemed counterintuitive to allow people to, um, hotlink quote unquote, your photo, your photos to your blog. Yeah. And so, um, but we realized that actually it wasn't going to be that expensive because of the cost, the costs were just declining 
you know, month over month. And so the way that Flickr really got going was when we allowed people to embed their photos on their blog. Because mm. Blogger and Movable Type, neither of them had the ability to serve photos. And one crucial thing happened is the number one question that was asked on the Blogger FAQ mm-hmm. was, where do I host my photos? And the guy who wrote the FAQ wrote Flickr. Wow. Flickr is the place that you can put your photos. And so then people started using it. Did you guys we, have some like watermark type thing we going were, on? Yeah, yeah. We we said like, we're happy to host your photos. Yeah. So long as you link back to Flickr. Yeah. Right? It's what happened with Imager and Reddit. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. Thing. Same thing. And so, yeah. and, and I, and I think that that was, that was tremendous because suddenly we were on blogs all over the place. And people were like, oh, well, you know, obviously if you're going to have a photo and eventually they did uh, enable people to upload photos to Blogger, but it yeah. was a long time coming. And in that intervening, you know, several months, you know, we just grew like crazy. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I heard the same thing about, um, Twitch writing their own encoder. Like they, they realized like there was like this massive cost savings at the certain point in time. And that's what allowed them to become profitable. Sure. To become this gigantic company. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Cause you could kind of see like the, you know, the cost mm-hmm. of like, you know, you know, storage and bandwidth declining like this. Yeah. You could just see it happen and you kind of knew what that trajectory was going to end up at. And, yeah. you know, yeah, you're losing money now, but you won't be losing money later. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So as a, so basically you created your own like little personal brand. Like back in the day, I, you know, I, and that's like, what I would never call it a person. I know, I'm kidding, <laughs> yeah, but, right? But, like, but, let's, yeah, let's you, not go there. I'm yes, <laughs> but you know what? You know what I'm saying? Because like this, people saying. ask this stuff all the time, and you sure, being, your, sure. I guess, designer historically, like trained. Yeah, historically, right? I was so so. That's kind of how I got into the internet, yeah. right? Because like I was this painter who failed at Wall Street for various reasons. <laughs> yeah. And then moved to California because my sister was out here and the web was happening and I thought to myself, "Oh, well, I can parlay my aesthetic um skills <laughs> into a design job." Some yeah. Kind of- and I already knew how to code. Like I was always I was always a very nerdy kid yeah. and I had my own computers and I knew how to kind of really do basic very basic programming, but you know, I always had an interest in Okay. interest in it. So that's how I got started. I, you know, I kind of was self-taught. Okay. And then what about when you're, when you're an investor, what are the things you're looking for in founders? So like these are kind of ways as a founder, you can might, you might be able to attract more users, right. but how as a founder or as an investor now, do you attract investors? Is it just as simple as like make something people want, make something great? Yeah. I mean, yes and no, because you can actually make something that people want desperately. And it won't work out. So I think a really instructive study was done by Bill Gross. Yeah. Right? Of Idea Lab, who I don't know how many, like 500 companies have gone through there. And, um, at some point, you know, they had a, they had a fairly large pool of companies that they had incubated there. You know, it kind of was like, mm-hmm. you know, Y Combinator before mm-hmm. Y Combinator. Yeah. And, um, it was like nineties, not Y Combinator. And, um, <laughs> he, he looked at the companies that had succeeded and those that had failed. And they looked at a bunch of different aspects that you could measure the companies in. Was it in a large market? Did it have, you know, did it have a very strong founding team? Were they execution oriented? Were there, was their timing right? Were they first to market? All of these different things that investors had historically looked at as, as, um, leading to the success or not of this company. He found that without a doubt, the single biggest factor 
of the success of the companies was not the individual contributors, their business plan, their, you know, market, but their timing. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know this because Flickr came out at a point when Friendster had already gotten people used to the idea of putting their pictures online and having an online profile, number one. Number two, more than half of U.S. households had broadband, could download a photo, mm-hmm. like literally. Um, and three, more than half of the cell phones were shipping with a camera. Yeah. Like it was unstoppable. It was a juggernaut. It grew so fast. And, um, you know, its timing was perfect. It was perfect timing. And um, I know this too because, um, you know, other companies that I have built, Hunch, I think Hunch was about five years too early, mm-hmm. right? And I think that Findery was about two years too late. And it's super interesting how these, how these, these things work out. And, um, so when we're investors and at YesVC, when we look at investments, we try to find what we're calling movements. We looked at those companies that I mentioned earlier, Etsy, Kickstarter, Cloudera was an investor, you know, was an investment. And, and, um, what, what was happening around them? What was the time? Like what was timed right? Etsy came to emblem, like kind of like represent the DIY handmade mm-hmm. anti big box retail movement. It was a movement, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I took it all around the valley and I took it to, you know, it's like kind of like big name investors, all of whom you've like know well and have heard of. And like they're all kind of like, wait, so let me get this straight. It's a bunch of women <laughs> sitting around knitting sweaters and selling it to each other. And I'm like, exactly. It's going to be <laughs> <Yeah>. huge. <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. They could not see it. And I right. think, but you got to understand there's this like groundswell. And it literally the next decade yeah. was about handmade this and artisanal that. Yeah. Right. You know, as an inv- investor in Blue Bottle Coffee, it was the same thing. It was like artisanal food was just like, like the decade was about that. Um, you know, Cloudera was like open source. Kickstarter mm-hmm. like basically came to represent, you know, crowdfunding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So cool. Yeah. So, so when you actually look at the cultural changes that are happening around your product, if you have the ability to spot a movement like that, a big cultural movement like that, everybody's traveling in the same direction. The reporters and the journalists mm-hmm. want to report on that. People are suddenly becoming conscious of the fact that they can have artisanal pickles. Really? <laughs> we don't need artisanal pickles, but suddenly everybody's like desiring them. You see what I'm saying? Like, and yeah. so there's, there's this sort of groundswell of movement and like, you're just like, you're, you're a surfer and yeah. you see the big wave and you're like, I am on that wave. And, you know, being able to kind of see that hone your, um, kind of eye. You know, in your heart, mm-hmm. you know, and like all of your kind of senses towards that, mm-hmm. you know, is, is tremendous. So if you can like, cause everything, everything around you wants you to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so if you can find that, like as an investor, that's like, you know, th- that's, that's it. an amazing thing. And it's as a founder like, as well, that's the thing. And as a founder as well, like honestly, um, you know, figure out the thing, not just make something that people want, because a lot of time you can make something that people want, but, uh, you know, not enough people want it or they're not aware that they want it or like the culture's like kind of gone beyond it or. Well, especially if you're taking VC. Yeah. Especially if you're taking venture. 
Yeah. So, so, okay. So wrapping up, um, people can find should this exist on iTunes and we'll link it up. Yes. Excellent. Cool. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be great. Um, (laughs) but if, if I'm a founder, what questions like should I ask if I should like maybe should this exist? Like, should I make this thing? Right. What what would you suggest as like an exercise? There's so many, there's a really good, um, kind of, framework for asking these questions. And I, and I honestly think it's not just a single question Mm -hmm. and it's not at a single time, right? I think it's something that you just have to build into your process Mm -hmm. as founders and, um, as employees actually, cause you know, I, there's more people joining startups than founding startups. So I think it's the responsibility of a lot of people on the team, like you mentioned earlier, um, to be just, just asking that question, should this exist? And it can be the same question. I mean, at different points in the game, right? If I make this decision about the design of the recent activity, so-called feed, is this, should this exist? Like, is this a feature that people want or need? Um, is this going to end up like, let's, let's do a thought experiment. Let's just like sit down and kind of (laughs) imagine if this thing becomes the thing that millions of people use. Just like think it through. Yeah. Right. And then put on your, your kind of doomsday scenario hat. <laughs> right. Like your science fiction, your science author. fiction dystopian novelist hat. Yeah. And say to yourself, is this, is this like, so like, let's say I'm just, you know, the most pessimistic person on the planet. Find the pessimists around you. We've all got them in our <laughs> lives, right? And they especially stand out to entrepreneurs because yeah. they really they're they're looking at things this way and we're looking at things that way. So bring them in and say like, look, and those people who are just kind of like, no, no, that's you know that's bad. It's going to be bad. Like listen to listen to them yeah. and kind of figure out. Okay, are they right? Right? Are they yeah. right? Like, could this end up there? And um and you know kind of just like sometimes just. Seeing it for the first time is enough to be like, ooh, we're going to change that feature or we're going to build an admin function that prevents that from happening. Or we're going to take a totally different data set and feed it into our AI so that we don't have that outcome. So that's it. I think that's great. Well, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) This has been fun. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.